Welcome to tape number four of the Gleanings in the Godhead, part two, Excellencies which pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing in which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 7, The Servitude of Christ God has many servants, not only on earth, but also in heaven. The angels are all ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14, who do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word, Psalm 103, verse 20. But what we now contemplate is not any servant of God or from God, but something infinitely more blessed and amazing, the divine servant himself. What a remarkable phenomenon, an anomaly in any other connection. Yes, what amounts to a contradiction in terms for supremacy and subordination, godhood and servanthood are opposites. Yet this is a surprising conjunction Holy Writ sets, forth, sets before us that the Most High abased himself and the Lord of Glory assumed the form of a menial. The King of Kings became a subject. Most of us at least were taught from childhood that the Son of God took unto himself our nature and was born as a babe at Bethlehem. Perhaps our familiarity with this tended to blunt our sense of wonderment at it. Let us ponder not so much the miracle or mystery of the divine incarnation, but the fact itself. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled, and be very high. Isaiah 52.13 There are four things here. First, the note of exclamation, behold. Second, the subject, the divine servant. Third, the perfection of his work shall deal prudently. Fourth, the reward bestowed upon him. He shall be exalted and extolled. The opening, behold, is not only a call for us to focus our gaze upon and enduringly consider the one before us, but also and primarily as an exclamation or note of wonderment. What an amazing spectacle to see the maker of heaven and earth in the form of a servant the giver of the law himself becomes subject to it. What an astonishing phenomenon that the Lord of glory should take upon him such an office. How this ought to stir our souls. Behold, wonder at it. 
be filled with holy awe and then consider what our response ought to be. Behold, my servant, none other than the Father himself owns Christ in this office. This is most blessed, for it is in sharp contrast from the treatment he received at the hands of men. It was because the Messiah appeared in servant form that the Jews despised and rejected him. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And they were offended at him. Mark 6.3 Apparently the holy angels were nonplussed at such an incredible sight, for they received and needed the divine order. Let all the angels of God worship him when he brought his first begotten into the world. Hebrews 1.6 let, as though they were uncertain, as well they might be now that their maker had assumed creature form, all the angels of God, none excepted, the highest as well as the lowest, archangel, cherubim, seraphim, principalities and powers, worship him, render homage and praise unto him, for far from his self-abasement, having tarnished his personal glory, it enhanced it. How blessed to hear the Father testifying of his approbation of the one who had entered Bethlehem's manger, bidding the angels not to be staggered by so imperiled a sight, but to continue worshiping the second person in the Holy Trinity, even though he now wore a menial garb. Nor has the Holy Spirit failed to record their obedience, for he has told us that while the shepherds were keeping watch over the flock by night, a celestial messenger announced the Savior's birth, and suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Luke 2, 13 and 14. How jealous the Father was of his incarnate Son's honor. It was evidenced again when he condescended to be baptized in the Jordan, for the heavens were opened unto him, the Spirit of God descended like a dove and abode upon him, and the Father declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3:16 and 17 Behold my servant, he says to us, shall deal prudently. Here we need to be on our guard, lest we interpret carnally. In the judgment of the world, to deal prudently is to act tactfully, Nine times out of ten, tact, that's T-A-C-T, is nothing more than a compromise of principle. Measured by the standards of unregenerate policy, Christ acted very imprudently. Could have spared himself much suffering had he been less extreme and followed the religious tide of his day. He could have avoided much opposition had he been milder in his denunciations of the Pharisees or withheld these aspects of the truth which are most distasteful to the natural man, had he been more tactful as this evil generation considers things, he had never overthrown the tables of the money changers in the temple and charged such unholy traffickers with making his father's house a den of thieves, for it was then he began to make so much trouble for himself. But from the spiritual viewpoint, from the angle of ever having the Father's glory in view, from the side of seeking the eternal good of his, sub, of his own, Christ ever dealt prudently. None other than the Father testifies to the fact. 
Instead of illustrating where Christ dealt prudently, we have sought to dispose of a general misconception and warn against interpreting that expression in a fleshly manner. It is true the Christian may, in rashness or acting with a zeal that is not according to knowledge, bring upon himself much unnecessary trouble. Yet if he is faithful to God and uncompromising in his separation from the world, he is certain to incur the hatred and opposition of the ungodly. He must expect religious professors to tell him he has only himself to blame that his lack of tact has made things so unpleasant for him. Christ dealing prudently means he acted wisely. He never erred, never acted foolishly, never did anything which needed to be corrected. But the wisdom from which he acted was not of this world, but was from above, and therefore was pure, then peaceable, gentle. James 3.17 Oh, for more of such prudence, obtained by communion with Christ, drinking in of his Spirit. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. This tells of the reward given Christ for his willingness to become a servant and for his faithfulness in discharging that office. It tells us first of the Father's own valuation of his Son's condescension and of the recompense he had made the one who became obedient unto death. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9-11 The perfect servant has been exalted to the throne, seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1, 3 Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. 1 Peter 3, 22 it tells also of Christ's exaltation in the affections of his people. Nothing endears the Redeemer more to their hearts than the realization that it was for their sakes he became poor and abased himself. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5.12 is their united testimony. Chapter 8 The Despisement of Christ He is despised and rejected of men, Isaiah 53.3, forms part one of the Messianic predictions. God made known long beforehand the treatment of his son would receive when he became incarnate. The prophecy of Isaiah was in the hands of the Jews 700 years before Jesus was born at Bethlehem. Yet, so exactly did it describe what befell him that it might well have been written by one of the apostles. Here is one of the incontrovertible proofs of divine inspiration of scriptures. For one, for only one who knew the end from the beginning could have written this history beforehand. It might have been supposed that the coming to earth of the Lord of glory would meet with a warm welcome and reverent reception, and more so in view of his appearing in human form and his going about doing good. Since he came not to judge but to save, since his mission was one of grace and mercy, since he ministered to the needy and healed the sick, will not heal the sick, will not men gladly receive him? 
Many would naturally think so, but in doing so they overlook the fact that the Lord Jesus is the Holy One. None of those who have the principle of holiness in their hearts can appreciate ineffable purity. Such an assumption as, uh, as just mentioned ignores the solemn fact of human depravity. The heart of fallen man is desperately wicked. Jeremiah 7.19 How can the Holy One appear attractive to those who are full of sin? Nothing so clearly evidences the condition of the human heart nor so solemnly demonstrates its corruption as its attitude towards Christ. Much is recorded against man in the Old Testament. See Psalm 14, verses 1-4. to Yet dark as its picture is of fallen human nature, it fades into insignificance before what the New Testament sets before us. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Romans 8-7 Never was this so frightfully patent as when he manifested in flesh. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. John 15:22. The appearing of Christ fully exposed man and brings to light as nothing else has the desperate wickedness of his heart. Let us consider three questions. Who was and still is despised and rejected of men? Why is he so grievously slighted? In what way is he scorned? Who was so unwelcome here? First, the one who pressed upon men the absolute sovereignty of God. Few things are so distasteful to the proud human heart as the truth that God does as he pleases without consulting with the creature, that he dispenses his favors entirely according to his imperial will. Fallen man has no claims upon him, is destitute of any merit, and can do nothing whatever to win God's esteem. Fallen man is a spiritual pauper entirely dependent upon divine charity. In bestowing his mercies, God is regulated by nothing but his own good pleasure. It is, not, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Matthew 20.15 is his unanswerable challenge. Yet as the context shows, man wickedly murmurs against this. The Lord Jesus came to glorify his Father. Therefore, we find him maintaining his crown rights and emphasizing his sovereignty. In his first message at the Capernaum synagogue, he pointed out there were many widows in Israel during the days of Elijah. But when there was great famine throughout the land, the prophet was not sent to any but one at Zarephath. And though there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, none were healed except by distinguishing mercy shown to Nahum the Syrian. The sequel was, all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong, Luke 4:28 For pressing the truth of God's absolute sovereignty, Christ was despised and rejected of men. Who was so unwelcome here? Second, the one who upheld God's law. In it, is, in it is the divine authority expressed and complete subjected to, subjection to it is required from the creature. Thus Christ pressed the demands of God's law upon man. 
Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Matthew 5.17 All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do you even so unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. Matthew 7.12 But fallen men resent restraints and want to be a law unto themselves. Their language concerning God and his Christ is, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2.3 Because the Lord Jesus enforced the requirements of the Decalogue, he was despised and rejected of men. A solemn illustration of this occurs when he spoke to the Jews. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? John 7:19. What was their response? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Verse 20. Who was so unwelcome here? Third, the one who denounced human tradition in the religious sphere. Despite the fall, man is essentially a religious creature. The image of God in which he was originally created has not been completely destroyed. The world over, blacks and whites, reds and yellows, pay homage to gods of their own devising. There are few things on which they are more tender than their sacerdotal superstitions. He who condemns or even criticizes the devotees of any form or order of worship will be greatly disliked. Christ drew upon himself the hatred of Israel's leaders by his denunciation of their inventions. He charged them with making the word of God of none effect through their tradition, Mark 7.13. When he cleansed the temple, the chief priests and scribes were sore displeased, Matthew 21.15. Who was the... Who was so unwelcome here? Fourth, the one who repudiated an empty profession. Nothing so infuriated the Jews as Christ's exposure and denunciation of their vain pretensions. Since he was omniscient, it was impossible to impose upon him. Inflexibly righteous, he could not accept deceptions absolutely holy. He must insist upon sincerity and reality. When they declared, Abraham is our father, he answered, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. When they added, We have one father, even God, he replied, If God were your father, you would love me. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. This so riled them that they exclaimed, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil. John 8:48 On another occasion the Jews asked him, "How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly." John 10:24 He at once exposed their hypocrisy by saying, "I told you and you believe not, but you believe not because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me." John 10:25 to 27 they were so angry they took stones again to stone him. Men will not tolerate one who pierces their religious disguise, exposes their shams, and repudiates their fair but empty profession. It is the same today. Who was so welcome here? Fifth, the one who exposed and denounced sin. This exclaims why Christ was not wanted here. He was a constant thorn in their sides. 
His holiness condemned their unholiness. Men wish to go their own way, to please themselves, to gratify their lust. They want to be comfortable in their wickedness. Therefore they resent that which searches the heart, pierces the conscience, rebukes their evil. Christ was absolutely uncompromising. He would not wink at wrongdoing, but unsparingly denounced it in whomever he found it. He boldly affirmed, For judgment I have come into this world, i.e., to discover men's secret characters, to prove they are blind in spiritual things, to demonstrate they love darkness rather than light. His person and preaching tested everything and everyone with whom he came into contact. Why was and is Christ despised and rejected of men? First, because he required inward purity. He is the great difference between all human religions and divine. The former concerns themselves with external performances, the latter with the source of all conduct. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 1 Samuel 16.7 Christ's exposition and enforcement of this truth made him unpopular with the leaders. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whitest sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead man's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so, you are outward, you outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Matthew 23, 25-28 Why was Christ despised and rejected of men? Second, because he demanded repentance. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Mark 1, 15 was his demanding call. That order is unchanging, for it is impossible to believe the gospel till the heart be contrite. Repentance is taking sides with God against ourselves. It is the unsparing judgment of ourselves because of our high-handed rebellion. It is a ceasing to love and tolerate sin and to excuse ourselves for committing it. It is a mourning before God because of our transgressions of His holy law. Therefore Christ taught, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Luke 13.3 For He would not condone evil. He came to save His people from their sins and not in them. Why was Christ despised and rejected of men? Third, because He insisted on the denial of self. This is on two principal points, namely, indulging and exalting of self. All fleshly lusts are to be unsparingly mortified, and self-righteousness is allowed no place in the gospel scheme. This was unmistakably plain in our Lord's teachings. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16.24 Yet nothing is more contrary to the desires of the natural man, and Christ's insistence upon these terms of discipleship causes him to be despised and rejected of men. How is Christ despised and rejected of men? In different ways and in varying degrees, professedly and practically, in words and in works. It is most important to clearly recognize this, for Satan deceives a great many 
souls at this point, he deludes them into supposing that because they are not guilty of what pertains to the avowed infidel and blatant atheist, therefore they are innocent of the fearful sin of slighting and defying the Lord Jesus. My reader, the following fact remains that there are millions of people in Christendom who, though not atheists and infidels, yet despise and reject the Christ of God. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Titus 1.16 That verse clearly enunciates the principle. Christ's authority is despised by those who disregard His precepts and commandments. Christ's yoke is rejected by those who are determined to be Lord over themselves. Christ's glory is despised by those who bear His name, yet have no concern whether they walk, their walk honors Him or no. Christ's gospel is rejected by those who on the one hand affirm that sinners may be saved without repenting of and turning away from their sins, and on the other hand by those who teach heaven may be won by our own good works. There are some who intellectually reject Christ by repudiating His claims, denying that He is God the Son, assumed a holy and impeccable humanity, and died a vicarious death to save His people from their sins. Others virtually and practically reject Christ. There are those who profess to believe in the existence of God, own His power, and talk about His wondrous handiworks, yet they have not His fear upon them and are not in subjection to Him. So there are many who claim to trust in the finished work of Christ, yet their daily walk is no different from that of thousands of respectable worldlings. They profess to be Christians, yet are covetous, unscrupulous, untruthful, proud, self-willed, uncharitable, in a word, utterly unchristian. This ends tape number four of part two of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink. Please go on to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Part 2 of the Gleanings of the Godhead by A.W. Pink, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com. 
These CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.